Empire of the Sun. Suns. Empire of the Suns. Wet like on book. Wet like on book. Wet like on book. Arizona Sports presents the Empire of the Suns podcast. Empire of the Suns. Hello there and welcome to the Empire of the Suns podcast. My name is Kellen Olson, joined as always by Kevin Zimmerman. How you doing, friend? Good. Um, we're in this, it's like a cave now because the office lights got changed and it's like you're in a science experiment and in this, what is it, a radio studio, it's, yeah, dark. So I like it. I'm good. Yeah, this is great. There was one new light bulb day when it was directly above me. And it was just like shining down. It felt like I was under a spotlight, but also it was just like this bright light in my peripheral. And uh, someone came and screwed it out because I couldn't, I could, <laughs> could not, could not deal, could not deal. And we're we're in the midst of it. We'll get used to it eventually, I think. But it is rather. Thank you for coming to my office minutia talk, complaint yeah. time, water cooler with Kellen. Yeah, this is weird. It was real weird. Uh, we'll get into Cat's talk in the second half of the podcast. As always, some exciting, thrilling U of A basketball that had me screaming and uh, on the edge of my seat quite literally watching at home. But of course, this is a Phoenix Suns podcast. We should talk about that team first. They have won five games in a row. They have won seven of their last eight. They are dealing with injuries. Campaign gets sick before the Sacramento game. That's where it kind of pushed them to their limits in terms of their depth. They still don't have Cam Johnson back. We'll get to Chris Paul in a second. They don't have him back yet, but it sounds like it could be pretty soon. And they keep winning basketball games. They blew out the Lakers. They pretty much blew out the Pelicans and the and the Rockets. Those were two games that were staying close. And then around some point in the fourth quarter, there was like a switch, right, where they just turned it on late and really put the game away. Uh, Chicago just did not look like they're themselves right now at all. Losers of eight of their last ten at that time. And then they get to this Kings game and they come out with not very good energy. They figure it out about two minutes left in the first quarter. It was a noticeable change back to the way they normally play. But by then the Kings had gotten a rhythm. They were feeling themselves. So then it was just going to be a long evening for them and it goes all the way to overtime Mikel Bridges plays 50 minutes and they win the game 127-124 as of recording which is Monday afternoon right now or Tuesday afternoon sorry if the Suns win tomorrow night that's Wednesday night in Minnesota and the Grizzlies lose they will lock up the best record in the NBA with two and a half weeks left to go in the regular season wow my long preamble, Kevin, was just because we basically already talked about this last episode, that they're probably playing their best basketball of the year right now, uh, and I would pretty much sustain that point over this stretch. I would go with that. I mean, we had some Jay Crowder injuries in here. He missed two games because of a groin, comes back for the Sacramento game, and then hurts his ankle. So all of this is to say we can sit here and talk about the ways that they're playing better, but we've kind of already done that for a while, so we're not going to go there. Instead, it's the 
discussion point that a lot of people have been having already, like even 30 games ago in the season we haven't really touched on yet, which is how do you approach the last two to three weeks of the season once you clinch the top record because they're going to, by the end of this week, they've got three games, they just need to win one of them, and the Grizzlies just need to lose one, and that'll happen. Uh, it'll be done by Sunday at the very latest. I will, I'm not one for certainties, Kevin, and, and predicting things and saying this will happen, but it will happen by the end of this week. So how do you approach this? Uh, Jay Crowder and Chris Paul were reportedly able to practice today on Tuesday. Classic Kellen asks Cam as well, thinking he's talking about Cam Johnson when in fact campaign did miss the last game. So Monty answered on behalf of campaign and I tweeted the wrong thing like a doofus. Uh, campaign did practice. Sounds like he's, I would assume he's just going to be back. He missed a game because he was sick. Uh, Cam Johnson did not practice. We're still waiting on him. Fans getting into conspiracy theory mode. What is a contusion, oh. really? Um, I mean, he missed, I think, 11, 13 games, one of those a dozen maybe in his rookie year for a right quad contusion, the same injury. And we are at nine games now. Once we get to, I'll say once we get to the Lakers game on April 5th, which is still two weeks away, if we get another two weeks here and he's still not practicing, that's when I think you guys can start to actually worry. But. For now, I would I would recommend not worrying. We have long talked about on this podcast. Uh, Chris Paul had a contusion in his shoulder. Is that what they called it, Kevin, <laughs> yeah. in the playoffs? So we know we're sometimes not getting the full extent or the full description of what the injury is. But with that being said, not time to panic. But I don't know. How, how do you go about this? Do you consider giving guys every other day? Do you not even let guys play back-to-backs anymore? How, how, what do you think? Because everyone seems to have a clear-cut opinion on this. I'll get to mine in a bit, but it's it seems like there's pretty definitive ways to go about it. I think you you really look at minutes and you throw like Biz out there for a couple minutes to shave off uh, a DA, for example, a couple healthy minutes if he's healthy. Um, guys with injuries. Um, like Jay, I think would be a good one where it's like, okay, he suffered groin and ankle injuries recently, probably is not going to want to sit out, but you can say, Hey, you, you take the back to back off. Um, and then the guys who are coming back from injury, I think you, again, it's kind of individual where it's like, I think, you know, Chris Paul's been off long enough where you want to get him some game run. Um, I'm not sure it matters when that is, whether that's sooner or whether that's toward the end of the season, close to the playoffs, probably. But you you got to get him in a little bit of rhythm, and same with Cam Johnson. So I I think it's by player, but there's there's reason to also not play guys who are you know Mikel Bridges. We were talking before we were recording, like his minutes are what 38 minutes per game. He's going over 42 frequently. Probably he hit 50 in the overtime game, like pull minutes back off him and, and give it to a guy who's toward the end of their bench. Um, is Frank even like a guy who could potentially come back? I saw a video of him at least wandering around on a basketball court with his teammates. So I think those guys can definitely benefit in the last few weeks here. Let me take you back to a magical time, Kevin. Oh. 15 games into the season. The leader in minutes per game on this team was Mikel Bridges. He played 33 a night. That was it. Um, Monty was very cautious, and again, I have been saying this on this podcast forever. It's a very smart basketball team who uses data, uses all this stuff. They got all their numbers in front of them, and their, uh, I don't want to say the numbers, their collective thought process with all the factors considering led them to believe in the first 15, 20 games of the year we got to like 
ramp these guys up slowly. We cannot have mm-hmm. them out there playing 38, 40 minutes. Mikel was at 33, 33 for Booker, 32 for Paul, uh, 30 for Aiton, 29 for Jay Crowder, and then 22 for Cameron Johnson. The key name here, Kevin, is Abdul Nader. He played 10 minutes a game. They were playing a 10-man rotation, and that is where I believe you insert Ish Wainwright into the rotation full-time. I am saying this with the um, disclaimer. With all due respect. Oh. With the, dis- uh, with the <laughs> disclaimer that Monty Williams understands this basketball team better than anyone else on the planet by a substantial margin, even those within the organization. So if you are sitting there as a person who watches this team and suggests that he should just sit Mikel Bridges for the last 10 games of the year, Devin Booker, De- DeAndre, and Chris Paul, whatever – Keep that in mind, that he knows better than anyone what it's going to do to them mentally, physiolog- uh, psychologically, emotionally, all that stuff. With that said, Mikel Bridges can't play 15 minutes in the game anymore. That's got to stop. Uh, Ish Wainwright can play 12, and Mikel can play 38, and those 12, you know what? They're, they might lose a lot of points on the board when that happens, and guess what? That's just not going to matter anymore uh, for this team in terms of what they are trying to maintain to get the number one seed, to get home court, once we hit that barometer, I think we do. Looking at this, we, we, we move to that kind of world where no one plays over 35 minutes a game in the rest of these games unless they are in a hyper-competitive game against a Utah, against the Clippers, and it can be used as a sort of preamble, pre, preview for the playoffs, get, get a playoff game in when it's there, let the guys play extended minutes. Chris Paul talked about that in the Utah game. Remember last year? When both of them were, they were one two in the NBA. Yeah, and Chris said that was really important for guys to not play in a playoff game, but play in something that felt like a playoff game and play extended minutes. Like for guys to play thirty eight, forty two in that caliber of basketball, he said was really important. So looking at the schedule, Kevin, Minnesota, Denver, a back to back. Obvious reasons there with back to backs not to do anything crazy with the minutes. But then you got Sunday at home against Philly, Wednesday on the road against Golden State, Friday on the road against Memphis. I think that this is their last hurrah, their swan song, Kevin, where you take these five games, you really try to implement whatever else you're trying to implement, go through in the offense, in the defense, with the core guys, with them playing their regular minutes, whatever it is. And then once we get to that Memphis game, we've got five more games left in the year. At Oklahoma City on a Sunday, a Tuesday, Wednesday back-to-back within Phoenix, you take on the Lakers, and then you go back to you go to L.A. to take on the Clippers, and then you play Utah in Utah on, fr- on a Friday, and then you play Sacramento at home on a Sunday. I think those last five games are when you pull everything down. Just like we got these little this audio equipment in front of us, Kevin, with all these sliders going up and down. Let's move everyone down. I don't down want to move bit. any of them. Let's but... move everyone down. Let's okay. move Ish Wainwright's slider up a bit more. Let's move... Frank Kaminsky's up a little bit more if he's back. Let's figure out a way to go 10-11 deep in these games. I think that should be the approach just because of how much they've expended in this, just because they are the team in the league right now that is not doing load management, that's not doing anything like that for these guys. And I'm not saying the guys need to sit second games of a back-to-back, but Mikel's played 39 minutes a game in the last nine games that Cam Johnson has been out for. And even Monty said Jay Crowder's minutes before that groin thing, it was like they were just we, – we didn't like how high they were getting. He didn't say we didn't like, but it was like the, the, the minutes were getting up there for what we like for him, which has only been 28 minutes per game in the last seven. But he's the guy who's played the two longest seasons in the league possible right now, the only guy to do that. He's been in the league a while, 
So you got to watch him. That's my whole thing on it. So I, I don't know where you agree, disagree, but I just think you dial everyone down considerably and go from there. Like I said, if the Utah game, the Clippers game gets nuts, have someone play 38, 40 minutes in that game, that one game, that's okay. But I don't think anyone should really be getting above 35 the rest of the way. But doesn't matter who you're playing because to me it's like, like you mentioned with the Utah game, what they got, they got Golden State, they got Memphis, they got Utah, even if you say the Clippers in there, I mean, Philly, do you just want your competitive juices going? Do you hold them out in the first half and then you say, okay, and I'm just going to account for you needing to play down the stretch if this is a close game? Or do you say, you know what, screw it, I'm just not going to pay attention to that team. We're going to do my rotations where Book plays maybe 30 minutes, CP plays 30 minutes, and like not give them ammunition because like from a scouting perspective i'm curious how they approached that last few weeks too because golden state for example they haven't really seen golden state as it's gonna look if they meet in the playoffs so that to me is gonna be super intriguing whether they're gonna go hard i could see them going hard because just how this team's built but there's reason to say, all right, like even the Clippers, that's a really good team where you don't want to give Ty Lue, oh, this is how they're going to attack us. So I I don't know. I don't want to go Cliff Kingsbury and just say, no, we're not going to show you anything. They are going to play four of the possible five play-in teams yeah. from here. Uh, Minnesota, Denver. Denver could drop. Uh, Clippers, Lakers, they don't play the Pelicans, but... Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. We saw it last year. David was saying on Twitter, like they're just against the Lakers. They weren't running anything. They weren't running any of their stuff. They yeah. weren't showing anything. And and maybe that'll be their approach for these games too. And I I think they have again earned the freedom to do that now with their seating and all that kind of stuff. So I don't that that's my take on it. In, in terms of when you bring back Chris Paul, when he is absolutely a hundred percent, unless he's not going to get to a hundred percent and whatever ceiling he can hit right now, he's there. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. The interesting. So once he hits that ceiling, you get him out there for a couple regular season games if that's possible, and you go from there. Look, if he's if he's at that threshold right now, then and he plays Wednesday, great. And then he just plays the last ten games of the year. I think with him, it's he's in a good spot actually because we talked about it when he got hurt that that's such a significant chunk of the season, and it's not like he should have been running and at least had the opportunity to do cardio stuff. So it's not like he's just going to be gassed or out of shape. Um, and, and we know how he takes care of his body. So I, I think that he could theoretically come back and I wouldn't be as concerned about him. But yeah, the Mikel thing is like you want to, I know he's young or whatever, but I'm just, yeah, that that type of guy where it's him and Book who are just super physical, don't get credit for that, but they're running around on both ends too and we saw Mikel kind of drop off once he got hurt on the offensive end but I think that there is something to say like he could be a much better scorer if he didn't have that huge responsibility of chasing everyone around on defense so him he's probably number one maybe even DA's up there too speaking of Mikel to kind of wrap up Suns talk yeah uh, defensive Player of the Year has been discussed. Monty Williams and Devin Booker both said after Sunday's game that they believe he should be Defensive Player of the Year. There have been cases made here and there. There is no one outside of Stephen A. Smith just shouting from the rooftop that he should be Defensive Player of the Year. And, and even then, um, I hate to rain on people's parade here, but him saying it for five seconds at the end of a segment and and 
it's different than holding a whole segment to talk about Mikel Screaming Bridges. Screaming for a minute straight. What, whatever it is, right? Yeah. It, it was it was just a brief aside that he was giving, and I think that I've talked about that since Booker was someone who was under consideration for All-Star and under All-NBA. This is how awards season works. It's how much buzz can there be built around. That's why teams send out like little they'll send out fences for for someone making all defense and stuff. You know what I mean? They send out like props. And that is why you hear Monty Williams and Booker saying he should be defensive player of the year. So people are talking about it more because it's not really being talked about that much and and to that point, Kevin, the odds for him have dropped off a cliff dramatically again. Uh, from what I was looking at on a couple of different websites, a couple of different sports books, it's between Adebayo, Gobert, and Giannis right now for the top three spots. Mikel's not even top five in odds right now. I believe he'll be top five in votes, but he's yeah. not top five in odds. I think he is going to be an easy second to fifth place vote. How many votes do they get? Three? It's three, right? I think it's three. But whatever it is, like second, third, fourth, or fifth, he'll be an easy person to put in one of those spots, but I really doubt he's going to get many first-place votes, and you need a couple of those to get this award. I don't think he's going to get it. I have long talked about uh, his value defensively and what it means to this team. The numbers back it up. He hasn't missed a game. He's number one in minutes played right now. All the other guys above him in minutes per game have missed games. He hasn't. He's number one on NBA's tracking data defensively when it comes to the amount of distance that he travels each game. That's a little unique tidbit because of the guys that he's covering and running up and down. And by the way, he's having the best offensive stretch of his career right now while still maximizing this 50 games into the year. Uh, I don't believe that he is defensive player of the year. If I sat down really for a couple of hours and went through the cases for everyone, I don't think he would have as good of a case. Um, but he deserves to be prominently featured in the conversation. All first team, easy. And he's definitely going to, if he doesn't make all first team, that would be crazy. But I, I don't know anymore. Yeah. So I, I never know with these things. I have no idea. I think the last year's voting where he just missed was promising, but it is, if you even look at the list last year, I believe it's crazy because people don't know how to quantify, crazy quantify, um, just how perimeter players are good at defense like you can't look at how many points are scored against them you can't look at how many blocks steals really isn't as much of an indicator as people think in terms of how good you really are so i just think that there's a failure because there aren't hard numbers to attach to anything um when Tony Allen or like Pat Bev for example like people are annoyed by him if you take away the annoying things he does like he should be on that team or a second team every year probably just because he changes the game with his defense. Drew Holiday didn't make it for a while, which was crazy. Drew I think Holiday last year was the first yeah. year he made it, which was nuts. But yeah, there's just not a great way to quantify it. So I think we struggle with this, and I, I say it every year. Like it's always a big man thing, just because oh, it blocks, blocks, blocks. Well, and despite the Suns being the best team in the league by a discernible margin people are going to rely on numbers for some of these things. And Mikel's steal rate and block rates aren't that high. When you look at on-off, which is should not be used arbitrarily as one single thing, he has the highest. The Suns have, the among all the players on the team, their defensive rating is at its best when Mikel is on the bench compared to anyone else on the team. Why? 
Well, the other Damian Lillard's on the bench. Steph Curry is <laughs> on the bench. John ja Moran is on the bench. Luka Doncic is on the bench. Demar Derozan's on the bench. Jason Tatum's on the bench. Fred Van Vliet's on the bench. Pascal Siakam's on the bench. I could go on and on with the guys that he covers, and that is why I think he has the type of case that deserves to be in this conversation. Um, but ultimately, it comes down to what you want to value and how you want to go about the arguments. It just doesn't seem like he has the gusto right now, unfortunately, because that's what Book's saying. Like the criteria changes all the time. Like he. He mentioned we're nine or ten games up on the next team. That should matter, too. They should win awards, yeah. They should win awards because of that, because they're about to have one of the best regular seasons we've seen in the past 20, 25 years for a regular season team. That should factor into every single person's case, including Monty's for Coach of the Year. Isaiah Thomas shouted out Book for if, an MVP conversation. Yeah. or just like, I don't understand why the guy leading scoring on the team that's that good of a record that far ahead of every other team isn't in the conversation. He should at least be in the conversation. The top five or six guys are really, really good in the league, but Booker should be first-team All-NBA. And if he's not first-team All-NBA, he better be second-team All-NBA, but that's probably going to be Chris Paul's spot, and he's probably going to get third-team. Probably get third-team. I'm not even sure if he's going to get third-team, which would be insane. Yeah. But I could definitely see it happening. That's how these things work, I thought. You, yes. You win, and then the things come, but I could... Yeah. Not, not in Phoenix. Not when... No. Again, like... I said to you today earlier before this pod, like, this team's too boring. They're so good. We're we're talking about the same stuff because they're just so consistent on this podcast. We're talking about the same stuff. but And it's like LeBron's having one of these statistical seasons that we've rarely seen ever, but he's not coming up in the MVP conversations, and it doesn't matter. So it, do, it matters there, but it does matter when All-NBA is brought up and he's seemingly going to be a lock for first team, if not second team at the very lowest. Yeah. It's like, all right, he's A-Rod on the Rangers. What are we doing here? You know what I mean? <laughs> but it that's coming from our perspective that's been unique of watching guys get ragged on for being on losing teams the whole time and looking at his defense being a negative bookers for so long. And I I look at LeBron so differently this year just after being there and seeing it in person and watching him on the third possession of the game not even jog back on defense anymore. Yeah. It's like how much does it matter that a the best basketball player in the world is putting up those types of years when he's doing it because he's loafing around on defense the whole time. And that's that's why Monty has, I guess I haven't heard the questioning, but he's made a point multiple times in the last, what, month about Book being like all defense. Yeah. And that's, you know, maybe a stretch from a head coach who loves Book, but it's not like far-fetched to me. It's closer to that than it is Devin Booker's bad at defense narrative thing. So, yeah, it's it, there. They're clearly aware and trying to create um, a little momentum because they know that they earned a lot and they're going to lock up the one seed in a sec. Also a lot easier for us to say when we've thought for over a year now that Booker is their best player and their most important player and nearly everyone else thinks it's Chris Paul, including the people that will be voting on these things. So yeah. if we if we did a vote among the voters of who's more important to this team, Chris Paul or Devin Booker, it would be like 95% Chris, I would, I would imagine. Yeah. And we do not believe that to be the truth, which is why we believe Booker should be compensated for such things with his All-NBA first or second team placing. Yeah, if Trey Young or Donovan Mitchell makes it over him, holy smokes. Oh. Holy smokes. Uh, we'll, we'll get there when we get there, though. We'll have that next week, too. Uh, if you guys remember, we had an episode last week where we did written pieces, too. We can get into uh, the thing that we did is they have so many guys up for rewards. It's like, which ones do we want to vouch for the most? Who do we want to make the cases for? Are you a Cam Johnson six man of the year guy, Kevin? We're going to have to find out next week. We're going to wait and see.
good because I haven't thought about it deeply enough. They better have one guy make first team All NBA. Monty better win Coach of the Year or Mikel better win Defensive Player. One of those three things has to happen yeah. with the year that they've had. If it continues, if they go two and eight in these last ten games and they finish sixty and twenty two, it changes things. But they're going to win sixty four, sixty five games here. We'll see. We'll get there when we get there. The, the time for argue for complaining and and uh, and and being being a bitter berry and all that kind of stuff. We can get there <laughs> when we get there. Uh, that wraps up the Suns portion of this podcast. Thank you guys so much, as always, for listening. Do the review stuff. Do the subscribe stuff. Do all that stuff that stuff gets done on podcast stuff. Podcast stuff. And if you still want to hang out here and talk about our Arizona Wildcats moving on to the Sweet 16, stick around because we're here and we're about to start talking about it in three, two, one. What did you think of this <laughs> weekend, Kevin? Because I am rather conflicted it's either this is just like a cheap answer but it's either they had two tough outings to learn about the experience and the pressures and how execution is important in the ncaa tournament or um they're gonna lose to houston because it didn't look great um i don't think the pac-12 is very good based on how those other teams did based on how arizona looked like it couldn't dribble or pass against um decent athletes tc was good though like that team played in i think we've decided that's the toughest conference by far now big 12 i I don't know (laughs) big eight big six big 14 i don't know man whatever what'd you think what i hate more um, is that they played like this against TCU after the way they played against Wright State. Yeah, I'm reading a lot into the 116 game. I'm going to choose to do that because the guys that I vouched for the most on this podcast have been Tubelis, Creesa, or not Creesa, I, I guess Creesa to an extent, but Tubelis, Kyer, and Larson. All three of them looked terrified on Sunday. Terrified. Oh, yeah. Kyer played 14 minutes, Tubelis played 16. Larson played 30 just because someone else has to play now because they have six guys, but he really wasn't a guy who should have been out there. I thought that he was he was okay in that game. Larson was was okay. Kyer was a nightmare. Tubelis was a nightmare cool. too. Um I think Tubelis's touch was just a little bit off and that got to him, but when it I didn't he's just a fearless, really tough basketball player. But I had people tweeting at me and saying like he's soft, and I was like He's playing soft right now. I don't think he's soft. And then you made the astute observation of, ooh, he's not playing against Pac-12 athletes anymore. This might be a different story when he plays against players on TCU and players on Houston who we're talking about here in a bit. It, it drastically changes things for me if half of those guys aren't really playing well. Guess what, Kev? I thought Kirk Creasa was great. He shot yeah. one of ten, and I <laughs> thought he was great. People hated the three threes in a row. Thing. apparently I heard he's this wide too. open oh yeah shoot the ball can also, you imagine if he didn't shoot and then the possession stopped shoot the ball also for how terrible the rest of his teammates are at shooting like i'd rather have the confident as heck guy on yes. a bum ankle take the shots that are set shots anyway in the game on houston 
I implore all of you who think Kirk Reese was terrible in that game to watch what happens when he's on the court and the opponent makes or misses and how quickly he brings up the ball and how quickly he gets them into their stuff. Because Kyer was too busy seeing demons and ghosts in his head to do that. Larson, dribble, yeah. Larson was too. Tubelis was too. That's not Matherin's job. That's not really Terry's job, even though he did it a little bit. That's that's those three guys' job. It's Kreese's job. It's Kyer's job, mostly. And Kreese was so great at it, and sometimes he was shooting in those situations, sometimes he wasn't, but it puts pressure on the defense, and more importantly, it maintains their pace throughout the game that they need to play with. Because something else that you, I think, tweeted was, can they play their style of basketball against these teams? And correct, we don't know. Because the transition game wasn't much of a factor against TCU when I thought it would be. It was against Wright State, but just because Wright State couldn't stop turning the ball over in really bad ways that weren't really on Arizona. The one encouraging thing for me, Kevin, I thought they played one of the best defensive games of the year against TCU. I thought they were very good defensively, and especially with the execution of the trapping and all that kind of stuff. I thought they did really well. But I, I am worried because Christian Coloco was a man possessed. He was incredible. The high-low game was working to a certain extent. Matherin was good at the start of the game when he realized that he needed to get to the foul line and the jumpers weren't falling, and then he started settling again for the jump shot, just like he did against Wright State when it felt like he was never getting into the lane. Uh, and then he went nuclear at the end and obviously was the absolute man and made the three biggest plays of the game. He hit the three. He had the offensive rebound. Those were the two biggest plays of the game that he made. Uh, I thought Dalen Terry was awesome as well. Uh, Five steals, five assists, five points, four rebounds. Even with two of eight shooting, I thought he was the man. But that's not going to be enough against Houston because they're not going to get Coloco and Matherin. They're both not going to play that well. Again, it's just not going to – you can't reasonably expect that. So I I don't know. before we move on, where were you at emotionally during the TCU game? Because I was, with eight minutes left or whatever, it looked like the game was over and that was the last hit, and I was just hoping that they weren't going to play like it was, and they played like it was. So I, I, think, was, I was frustrated. I think my small child was screaming at my face and I wasn't doing anything about it because I was just staring at the TV. <laughs> I think that's what was happening, but emotionally I was like, I was setting my expectations to be like all right well they were fun yeah i was i was i don't <laughs> want to stop watching this team because they're really fun to play for and i was already like drafting tweets in my head of like <sighs> oh well yeah. great year hope those guys go make their money and we get everyone else back in this transfer portal doesn't screw anything else up but here here's the weird thing though if they don't figure out their transition and Krisa doesn't like isn't himself like I don't expect I expect Tubelis not to throw it into three guys because he saw a, a flashing cutter and just fired it like like no one's there. I expect that stuff to get cleaned up. He but, missed his touch shots too. Like it wasn't yeah. just like length. It was he was just missing twelve foot hook shots that are automatic for him most of the time. I, I just think that it might come down to if they can like lean on the defense. I wouldn't even put it past them to, like to keep winning. But, again, you would have to get crazy games out of Matherin and Coloco, which, again, is not out of the question because I think they're both really good players and are helping their NBA draft stock tremendously. But, yeah, I don't know. I I hate that I don't know because I, I was rather certain about this team. Um, 
every offensive rebound TCU got was when Bala was on the court. I was going nuts. <laughs> it was Lampkin. Lampkin was his man on almost all of those, and it was just right under the rim. It's like get get a hip on him, dude. Um, but he actually played pretty well. I thought Bala actually played pretty well. He oh, made, really? He made a he made a couple of for his ex for my expectations of him, I should say. So he probably didn't really play that well in all hindsight, but um, he made that really nice pass to Coloco. I thought a couple of defensive rotations he made were good. Uh, but he 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 was a mess in other areas uh, as usual. So I don't know. But so to like round that out, two guys played absolutely out of their minds and made mm-hmm. themselves a lot of money. Coloco and Matherin. Terry played the he great played Dale and Terry game that yeah. we normally see. Creasa was below average, but still his below average is a lot. They would have lost him. if he didn't. Yes. Yeah. Okay. They would have lost for sure. He was plus twenty something, I think, in the game is what I saw somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Which one is for 10. when he shot one of ten didn't in twenty five. Didn't Tommy Lloyd say after the game like he shot one of ten, but the plus twenty, I think that's sign. It is indeed. Uh and then those three other guys were just terrible. That's the yeah. thing, is like I, I I looked at this roster and said even if they don't play well, they're not just going to be train wrecks. But the, those three guys are – Kyer's the graduate. He's the fifth-year yeah. guy, and he just looked oh my. overwhelmed. Larson is fairly experienced. Tubelis is the guy who was the man on the team last year before Matherin exploded. So I thought he would be more prepared as well. If I had any picks for who was going to kind of fade a bit in the tournament, I'd obviously Balo, but then also Matherin I thought was a key, was, was going to be someone who could potentially – and then Dalen as well, but – I thought Tubelis and those guys were just going to show up and be rock solid, and they weren't. Um, and and that is concerning, Kevin, because we talked about, and I I said that Arizona got a good draw for their region. They did, but they got one for they got a good draw if they are the team that they have been, and that was not the team that we have seen in the last few games. And if you, I believe what I said is. They can beat if they play the way they normally do. They will beat Houston. If they play the way they normally do, they will beat Villanova and beat both of them rather convincingly. If they play their average game that they did this year, they will beat both of those teams. We've seen two rather below average games, and the thing that's so scary here is that Houston is just like TCU, basically, where you've got athletes in length all over the court. You've got one of the best offensive Crash rebounding boards. games yep. in the in the country, and the thing that throws me off about Houston. So they've got no Sasser, who is their leading scorer, one of the best guards in the country. He's out for the year. And then they lost another guard who was one of their better offensive scorers. I don't know his name off the top of my head. But they lost two key pieces. So their their offensive firepower is pretty much gone. But with that in mind, they're sixth in the country in efficiency in terms of how well they shoot at the rim. And they're top 60 in terms of their two-point jumpers. They're around 200th in three-point shooting, which is about what you would expect. Like, the drop-off has to be somewhere. But the thing is, they don't get to the rim. They're 295th in shots at the rim, huh. which is which is rather low. They take a fair amount of jumpers, including twos, a lot of threes as well. Not a lot, but they're, they're about average for what you see. I think something that I saw that was rather alarming was sixth in efficiency on shots at the rim and fifth in the percentage that are assisted. So they that means that you move the ball well, and, yeah. and they move the ball well. We saw that Illinois game, and we saw some of the other games. They just move the ball really well. Another one that looked good, like 300th in shots in transition that they take. So they, they don't really get out and run a lot, even with the stops that they create. Uh, what's the secret to their sauce defensively? This is a better defensive team than TCU even, which is a scary thing to say, because if Justin Kyer looked like he was in a nightmare, then... Uh, I got news. I got bad news on that front. Um, 
Houston is 340. I believe there are 355 teams in the country. They are 340th in the percentage of shots they allow at the rim. So they just clog the paint. Their dribble penetration is good, but they also clog the paint. They're top 40 in the country in threes allowed, Kevin. They let teams shoot threes. Hmm. So I want oh, Dale and Terry taking threes. That's what you want, unfortunately, for Arizona. They've got to take threes. Yeah. Uh, they have got to create and generate threes in this game, and they have got to do so in a really solid fashion. When I look at this team and look at matchup-wise, I don't really uh, – Sheed or Shed, I believe it's pronounced, is their point guard. He's top 10 in the country in assists per game, and he's the guy who was the most troubling to me. They only have one really high-volume shooter, and it's a streaky guy named Kyler Edwards. He shoots 32 one year, 40 the next year, and then he's back down to 33 this year. He's kind of all over the plates. What concerns me is guys like Fabian White, Josh Carlton, and uh, and Tez Moore, who were three wings athletes where if Larson and Tubelis are playing shaky, Terry needs help with those guys. And that's where those two guys, and Matherin as well, but Matherin's smaller than those guys. Like he's a pretty and small And Tommy's just going to go to two bigs to like avoid that. Exactly, and that's where you run into trouble because Ballo's not good. Um, and he, Ooh, and guarding, yeah. With that in mind, what I will say, Kevin, in terms of him being a key, Carlton, their center, is only playing 28 minutes per game. They'll play some other, other bodies kind of in there. they got a guy named Reggie Chaney who's a little bit undersized, five who plays 12 minutes a game. And then they've got that Fabian White guy who's kind of a small ball five guy you can use in stretches. But Ballo's going to have a mismatch pretty much every time he's on the court. So they need to take advantage of that and find the ball with him. But again, they don't allow shots at the rim. So they are going to, I'm assuming they'll double team like every post touch almost immediately. And they're going to be looking for the the pass over the top that TCU just wasn't. For some reason, their rotations were off there. I didn't yeah. take a look back at what Tommy Lloyd did to make sure the help rotation was, guy wasn't there where he could get a hand on the ball. But they were just late on all those passes. Um, well, it was because they couldn't face the basket to pass because of the ball pressure. <laughs> yeah, it was... It was tough. So that's the that's the thing. I think they're going to beat Houston because I just don't see anything from a matchup perspective and, and a trouble guy on their team. If Kyler Edwards was a guy who was averaging like 18 points per game and was a marksman from three, I'd be worried. Um, but he's he's volatile, and, and this whole team offensively is volatile as a whole. They make you beat yourselves. And what we saw from Arizona is they were trying really hard to beat themselves. They, they were trying really hard to do it in both of those games. So will they in this one? Will they against Villanova if they get Villanova? Um, Villanova is a little bit of a different story same kind of thing it's a Villanova team they execute they pass the ball they're small uh, but they shoot threes well and they shoot a lot off the dribble as well with those two guards Moore and uh, Gillespie Gillespie, who who played with Mikel I think he's a fifth year senior now so he's been around a hot minute and that's the last thing that I'll say is that both of these teams are really experienced I think the line from the broadcast when White was playing was that was his 12th NCAA tournament game Houston just made the Final Four. White was one of the key pieces on that team. Edwards played for Texas Tech. Like they've got, they've got pieces. This team doesn't really have continuity. Villanova is the one where it scares me. They've got three seniors, a junior, and a sophomore that have all been in their program the whole time, um, except except one guy, I believe. But they've got a couple of transfers here with Houston. So continuity wise, it's not as crazy as you would think. But yeah, I I am concerned. If you couldn't tell already by how concerned I sound, I'm very concerned because I thought this was going to be a relatively easy pass to the final four for them. But they're just not the same team right now. The only good news is like Illinois and Tennessee, they don't have to play. I guess every analytics nerd loves Houston, even after the injuries. 
Like they're top, top. I think they're like top ten in offense and defense, and no one else is, or something like that. The latest Kempom numbers from like yesterday that updated with the two games in, they're second in Kempom in the country now. I believe yeah. they're way up there. They're f- the like BPI I think has them as favorites to win the title over Arizona. Yeah, yeah. And Villanova is like right in there too in that mm-hmm. mix. It's 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 a tough break. Uh, I'm gonna try and mentally get through thursday because the suns play the nuggets at six and this game starts at i think seven thirty. so uh i don't know how i'm gonna do it but i'm gonna <laughs> i'll cover i'll cover one team at once and root on the other on the other screen i guess i don't know i'll figure it out well good luck i'm not as happy as i thought i would be to watch this team in the tournament it's just back to nerves stressful again. and back to the mark titus tweet about like being an arizona fan is just like you're clenched up for two hours straight like you're just that's what watching arizona is like and that tweet is eight years old and it still holds up now it's it's a stressful experience all right well i can't help you but no you can't (laughs) we'll be back next week to talk about the suns clinching what that means moving from there maybe chris paul will be back maybe he will be uh we got the injury report mid podcast he's out uh campaign jay crowder not on the injury report so that's good news cam johnson's still out but some progress there which you'll take and we'll see what happens chris paul's been traveling with the team for the last two road trips so i would assume he's going with them we'll see later today uh but yeah we'll have more to talk about next week and we'll be back then see ya